you for listening to this message from Life in the Sun Christian Fellowship. We hope you'll be inspired to honor God and make disciples. And if you would, open your Bibles with me to Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And this is an interesting passage in the Bible. It's uh, just filled with uh, lots of significance and lots of history. And I just want to share with you the context and some of the historical background of Acts chapter 2. And it goes all the way back to events that happened in the history of Israel. And most of you know the story of when Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And the Lord told Moses to tell the people, I want you to sacrifice a lamb and put it on the doorpost, on the top of the doorpost and on the left and on the right, because a death angel would pass over the land and all the firstborn in the land of humans and of animals would be killed. But if the lamb was on the doorposts, that they, their firstborn would be spared. And this was, a, this was a, a memorial that the Israelites celebrated every year called Passover. And it was a symbol of what was to come. And how many of you know it's no accident that Jesus was actually crucified on the day of Passover? It was highly significant to the Jewish people, to their mindset, and to their culture. The people who were connecting the dots and putting this together were going, whoa, this is amazing. This is God. On top of that, for the next 40 days, he appeared to over 500 eyewitnesses. 40 is also very symbolic in the Bible. 40 is symbolic of promises fulfilled. You know that the Israelites wandered in the desert for 40 years and before they entered the promised land. And what's true in the spiritual, which is also true in the natural, I, I think it's amazing. Uh, another sim- symbol of the number 40 is uh, the promise of life. Uh, when a woman goes through pregnancy, it's 40 weeks before the baby is born the, until there's a promise of new life. And then it was, it was at that period of 40 days that Jesus ascended into, the, into heaven to be at the right hand of the Father. And, and that was a promise fulfilled that the Messiah had accomplished everything that he came to do and went back to be with the Father. And then the disciples were told to wait for 10 days. And they waited in Jerusalem. He said, wait, wait until you receive power from on high. And so 10 days later on the 50th day, which was the day of Pentecost which was the day that the Jews celebrated something called the Feast of... It was called the Festival of Feasts. And it was a time to celebrate the harvest. It was time to offer a new grain offering. It was time to celebrate the new harvest. And it was on the day of the new harvest that 3,000 believers were added to the church. And it was just an amazing parallel to the symbols of the Old Testament. 3,000 people. It was the first mega church. And from day one, there was a certain culture, there was a certain lifestyle that was already being established in the church. And we're going to read about it in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, which says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread, meaning they were sharing meals together, and to prayer. Now, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. What was that? What was it that the apostles taught? 
And if you read Acts chapter 2, it was the very first sermon by the Apostle Peter. And most of what is in the Apostles' Creed is also in his sermon, if you go back and read Acts chapter 2. Over time, the church leaders put together a summary of the Apostles' teachings, and it became known as the Apostles' Creed. A creed is a statement of beliefs. A creed is used, and this creed, this Christian creed, was used to define, defend, and declare the Christian faith. And it contains the most important truths in Christianity. It was these teachings that were used as a form of discipleship in the early church from day one. Acts chapter 2, 42 says they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. And I'd like us to read the Apostles' Creed together. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. In week one, Andy covered the very first part of the Apostles' Creed, and he highlighted that it illustrates three things. Uh, The existence of God, the identity of God, and the ability of God. The existence of God, and then the identity is God as our Father. And then the ability of God as the creator of the universe. This week, we're going to look at the next portion. We can go ahead and go there. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. To explain this in story form, I'd like you to imagine a farmer. A farmer in India. He's got this huge field that he's preparing for crop. He's got a tractor with a plow, and he's going down line by line, plowing his field. It's a huge field. And as he gets to one corner of the field, he sees something there that is unusual. He's not noticed this before. And he's eyeing it, and as he gets closer and closer, he realizes there's this huge ant mound in the corner of the field. And because he's from India, and because his religion is Hindu, he believes in reincarnation. And he looks at that anthill, and he parks his tractor, and he thinks, you know what? Some of those could be my ancestors. They didn't live a good life. Maybe that's why they're ants. (laughs) But he doesn't want to destroy them. And he thinks to himself, how can I get them out of here? I could try talking to them, but I know they're not going to understand a single word that I say. They don't know anything about tractors or agriculture or... The only way that he could possibly communicate to them is if he himself became an ant. And then at their level, speaking their language, maybe using ant dancer moves. Because science knows that they can tell each other where food is and how much food there is to send how many to go get the food. You know, he could possibly communicate danger. 
He could possibly communicate direction. Danger and direction. He could get them to move if he could somehow communicate on their level. God is so much higher than we are. There's no way we could possibly understand if he communicated from his level. I mean, even now with the aid of the Holy Spirit and and the Bible, the Word of God, sometimes we still have a hard time hearing God. Amen? But he didn't leave us in this state of mystery. He came down to earth in the form of a man in a way that we could understand and tried to communicate with us through stories to understand spiritual realities. Now, that's a nice story. But how do we actually know that Jesus is God who came down to earth in the form of a man? That's been the controversy for centuries. That's the big question. Who was he? Well, I think to answer this question of who is Jesus, the best source to consider is Jesus himself. What did Jesus actually say about himself? And I'd like us to consider Jesus' comments from three perspectives. I'd like you to consider what Jesus had to say from the perspective of his enemies. And I'd like you to consider what Jesus had to say from the perspective of his friends. And I'd like you to consider what Jesus had to say from the perspectives of those who were like neutral third-party observers. And see what they are observing. And so let's begin with his enemies. We're going to look at John chapter 10, beginning in verse 30. Jesus said this, The Father and I are one. Once again, the people picked up stones to kill him. So truly, these are his enemies. And Jesus said, At my Father's direction, I have done many good works. For which one are you going to stone me? And they said, We are stoning you not for any good work, but for blasphemy. You, a mere man, claim to be God. And so, from the perspective of his enemies, it was very clear to them what he was saying. In fact, they were ready to kill him for it. The re- in fact, the reason the Jewish leaders had Jesus crucified is because he made this claim to be God. And because they didn't believe it, they considered it blasphemy, which was punishable by death. This was the understanding of his enemies. Now I'd like us to consider the perspective of his friends. And for this, we'll look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 20. And, And speaking of friends, this was the apostle that was closest to him. The one who would recline against him when they were at meals, and he could hear his heartbeat, and he was the closest of all. And this is what he said. John chapter 5, verse 20, And we know that the Son of God has come, And he has given us understanding so that we can know the true God. And now we live in fellowship with the true God because we live in fellowship with his son, Jesus Christ. He is the only true God and he is eternal life. Wow, that is an amazing statement for the person who was closest to him during his time here on earth. And then we want to look at the perspective of neutral third-party observers. And for this, we'll look at the Roman guards who were there at the crucifixion. They were not followers. Neither were they the religious leaders who were jealous and wanted to crucify him. They were just doing their job, and they probably wished they didn't have to do this job. But the Roman soldiers said in Mark 15, verse 39, 
When the Roman officer who stood facing him saw how he had died, he exclaimed, this man truly was the Son of God. And so you have the perspective of his enemies, his friends, those who were neutral, and all of them understood that Jesus had claimed to be God. Now, I want you to think about this for a moment. I mean, just put yourself in their shoes. And imagine there was this person who was the talk of the town. And he was actually claiming to be God. I mean, what would you think if I said that from the stage here today? (laughs) Not too many believers? What would you think? Well, back in that day, they were going through the same thing. And so you got to think this through. What was going on here? So here's this guy claiming to be God. You really have only one of two choices, right? Either it was true or it was false, right? Those are really the only two choices. Now let's take for, let's just consider for a moment that it was false. Let's say he was not God. Come down to earth in the form of a man. He was not. So if that was the case, then we have to ask ourselves, did he know it? And if he did know it, what does that make him? If he knew he was telling that he was God, but it wasn't true and he knew it, what does that make him? Makes him a liar. We can go to the next one. Or, here's the other option. What if he was saying it and he actually thought it was true, but it wasn't? What would he be then? Yeah, he'd be delusional. He'd be a lunatic. The other option is, okay, let's just consider for a moment that it was true. Then who is he? We can go to the next one. Those are really the only three options. A lot of people try to claim that Jesus was a good moral teacher, but if you think it through and you consider what he said, that is really not a consideration. That is not one of the options. Either what he said was true and he's Lord, or he did, or it wasn't true, and he's a liar, or he's a lunatic. But he is not a good moral teacher. So, it's one thing to kind of go through a logical argument. But the bottom line is, what really happened? Who was he? And how would we know? So he claimed to be God. There are a lot of philosophical arguments for the existence of God and God coming down to earth in the form of a man. But I think God is very practical. And he knows that we're human and we need some evidence. And I think the greatest evidence to the claim that Jesus made is the fact that he overcame death and came back to life. Everything hangs on the resurrection. It all depends on whether or not he actually rose again from the dead. Because if he did, then that means it gives credibility to everything that he said. And we have to take that seriously. If he did not, he's just another man who claimed to be God and he never came back to life and therefore he was probably a lunatic or a liar if he knew it. The resurrection is the key to it all. Now, how do we know if that happened? How do we know anything happened? How do you know Abraham Lincoln was assassinated? 
You know, I hear some people say, well, you know, I don't know if I believe in that resurrection stuff because you can't prove it scientifically. Well, yeah, you're right. You can't. I agree. But the truth is you can't prove anything, any historical fact scientifically. You can't prove the assassination of Abraham Lincoln scientifically because the scientific method of proving something true is, first of all, you have to be able to observe it. And then it has to be repeatable. And then it has to be consistent in its results. That's how you determine physical laws of the universe. You have to be able to see it. You have to be able to repeat it in an experiment or a laboratory or whatever. And then other people have to be able to observe it and go, you know what? I saw the same thing. Well, you can't do that with a historical event. I mean, the person's dead already. You're not going to see them. You're not going to repeat the event. And therefore, it's not going to be consistent in its results. And so you have to have some other kind of method to know whether and whether or not it happened. And the method that we commonly use in society today is called the judicial method. The judicial method is what we use in the courts of law. In the courts of law, what you do is you get eyewitness testimony, and you try to get eyewitnesses from different perspectives. You try to get some of the friends, get some of the family, get some of the enemies, get some of the neutral people, and see what they're all saying about the supposed event. And if their testimony is consistent then the judge and the jury can conclude that such and such did in fact happen. How many of you saw the movie Risen? Showing in theaters, a few of you. I recommend it. It's a good movie. It's a movie about a Roman soldier who is given the task to go and find the body. And he's convinced it's out there somewhere. (laughs) And he goes through extremes in order to I mean, it's the greatest manhunt in history. I don't want to say anymore. I'll spoil it. Watch the movie. It's good. <laughs> you know, that movie really touched my heart because, you know, it reminded me of the process that I went through in becoming a believer. I didn't grow up in a Christian home. I didn't experience God until I was 20 years old. And I was an unbeliever, and I was a sinner, and I was lost. And then I began to consider God and began to experience God, and I tell you, it turned my world upside down. I was like, what is true? What is real? What am I experiencing? Trying to make sense of something that seemed like a mystery at the time. So anyway, the movie does a good job of revealing that process. Now, of course, the main character in the movie, his life is so much more dramatic than mine. But minus the drama, the process is what an unbeliever goes through in coming to Christ. It's a great movie. I encourage you to watch it. The resurrection is what gives credibility to everything that Jesus said. It was so powerful a historic event. I mean, just take out your phone for a minute and turn it on. Just do that. Go ahead, pop your phone on real quick. And the very date that's on your phone was set because of this specific thing that we're talking about here today, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's how significant that event was. It's impacted history. So still, we can ask the question, let's say that it all happened. Let's say it's true. Why is it so important that the apostles would include it in the Apostles' Creed? Let me say this. The identity of Jesus 
is the most important thing you can know for this one reason. It determines your eternal destiny. It determines your eternal destiny. John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is the way to have eternal life, to know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. Your eternal destiny depends on knowing who Jesus really is. He said, you know, a lot of us think, when we think of eternal life, we think of it in terms of life after this life that goes on forever. We think of it in terms of time. Jesus did not define it that way. He defined eternal life in terms of a relationship. He said it's knowing God and knowing Jesus whom he sent. The other reason that this is so important in the Apostles' Creed is that the very name of our church is rooted in this truth. 1 John 5.11 says, This is what God has testified. He has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. Now, to be very clear, the Apostle John goes on to say, Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Now, We're talking about a lot of things that are kind of up here. But I want to kind of move it to application. And what does that really mean for us? You know, faith in Christ is more than just knowing about his life. It's more than just believing that he lived and that he died and that he rose again from the dead and that he ascended to heaven. Faith in Jesus is trusting that he did all of this for you. He did all of this for you. The amazing message is this. Christ gave his life for you. But the even greater message is this. He did this because he loves you. He did this because he loves you. You know, Nita opened the service this morning with that statement. She said, God wants you to know that he loves you. God wants you to know that he's for you. God wants you to know that he's aware of what you're going through and what you need. And he wants you to experience him as you learn to trust him. And we need to, we need to be aware that Jesus is key to this. Remember in John 14, 6, what Jesus said? He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. That was Jesus who said that. And so I want to encourage you just to know that God loves you so much that he was willing to come and be here among us and take care of the greatest need that has ever existed.